it, it's not just about creating an ROI for our investors, return on investment. It's also an ROE, a return on experience. Welcome to Funds That Won, where we dive into some of the world's most renowned investment funds. We'll interview investment managers across the alternative landscape and learn how they built their million and even billion dollar asset management empires. We'll explore teams, structures, strategies, and best practices in launching and running alternative investment funds. I would love just to start out by you telling me about Axia. Uh, what is Axia Partners? What do you guys do? And what do you stand for? Yeah, so Axia, so, you know, originally I used to do a lot of syndications and whatnot. And, um, and then I started investing into real estate funds and I fell in love with the fund model. And specifically just because it mitigates so much risk, right? In fact, statistically, a syndication, so, just, you know, one address, one property is about 2.7 times more risk than investing in a diversified fund. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, all of my investors, you know, I've got, I don't know, three, almost 400 different investors now. And they're all my friends and family. It's very organic. I've never paid for a lead. I've never, you know, paid for a Facebook ad or any of that stuff. And so it's all people I really care about. And I'm really proud to be able to say I've never lost a dollar of investor capital in any real estate deal I've ever done. And so, you know, in the spirit of, of being able to protect that reputation, um, I decided to launch uh, Axie Partners, our real estate fund, about two and a half years ago. And I uh, found a few partners that uh, were on the same, you know, same wavelength, same mission, same core values. And we launched Axia and it's been an incredible ride. It's been really, really fun. And so, um, but the main reason why was because of that diversification, uh, lowering the risk profile. And then also, you know, on a syndication, I usually have 10 to 25 people coming in as partners. On a, on a fund, I can have, you know, basically an unlimited amount of partners and create more value and more impact. Awesome. T tell me about the products you guys invest in. Yeah, so the, the primary focus of, of, of Axia Partners is, is mitigating downside risk. And so it's commercial real estate investing uh, with a strong focus on being recession resilient. And so the three asset types we invest in are self-storage, love self-storage, multifamily. For me, that's been bread and butter. It's kind of where I cut my teeth in real estate. And then we also just recently added industrial warehouse, like flex warehouse space. And the reason for that is because industrial warehouse is projected to be the top performing asset across the real estate spectrum over the next five years. And so in our first offerings, we did not include industrial warehouse, but in the current fund, which is called the value development fund, we included that as well. Um, and then multifamily, I mean, that's just, you know, it's, 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 it's a necessity, right? People have to have a shelter. Uh, Self-storage historically over the last two recessions has been the most resilient asset class you know, back, look back in 08, 09, 2010, it only had about a two point drop on, on, a, na on a nationwide. And so we love those asset types. They're all, you know, hard assets. They create strong cash flow and also great tax benefits for our partners. So are these blended products where you get exposure to all the products uh, within one vehicle? Do you segment them out by product? Uh, what does that look like? Yeah, great question. So it is, uh, it's it in, in order to achieve that diversification, so, Say an investor comes in and say, Lincoln, okay, I want to put, you know, uh, a million bucks in with, with Axia. Yeah. One allocation, you're actually getting exposure to all three asset classes, as well as, you know, different geogra geographical, geographical diversification as well. And so not only are you multiple assets, but also asset classes, as well as geographies. And so it really is, you know, an extreme example of 
of true diversification. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of our partners love that because it's a way for them to be able really kind of lowering that barrier of entry to be able to get into having exposure to all those asset classes without having to, you know, hit that minimum investment amount per asset class. Yeah. Because traditionally, you know, funds will segment them by product set. Uh, but you wanted to have them all come together under the same roof and investors getting exposure to all of them. So any other benefits, key benefits of, or the rationale behind, uh, you know, what I typically call a multi-strat fund? Yeah. Um, was it primarily diversification or were your LPs asking for it and it just seemed natural or any other reasoning? Um, you know, part of it, honestly, was probably that's what I was personally doing. Yeah. And that's worked really, really well for me individually. You know, I love self-storage and multifamily. Like that was my my pedigree, if you will, my resume. Yeah. And so that carried over a lot. And, and a lot of my friends, again, my investors are my, my, it's my social networks, my right. friends, right? They wanted that same type of exposure, that same type of cash flow, the lifestyle that they saw that I created. And so I would say mainly it was based on, I'd say number one was based on the fact that it, the diversification, like yeah. we, we don't lose money, no matter what, like Warren Buffett says, rule number one in investing is don't lose your money. Rule number two is don't forget rule number one, right? So That's no matter right. what, and what I realized about myself is I hate w losing more than I love winning, you know, and yeah. I, I love winning, but I hate losing. And so the, the initial approach was, hey, how do we make sure we can mitigate downside risk? This was in 2021 where the markets were pretty frothy, you know, and it was, we were, you know, towards the, up, you know, the top end of, a, of the market cycle. And so like, hey, how can we create, you know, strong risk mitigation, but still create really strong yields for our partners? And so that was the kind of the core question behind it. Um, and, but to answer your question, so it was diversification. It was the fact that we can create access to so many different recession-related asset types. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the main, it's based on demand, you know, as a, as a sponsor, I love to ask my investors, Hey, you know, what are you looking for? You know, what, you know, what are your investment objectives? You know, how can I create maximum value for you? And so I was just listening to what, you know, what the market wanted. Did you get resistance from LPs as you were taking that out? You said you're listening to your friends, but did any of them resist about, you know, only wanting exposure to multifamily or having a prior bad experience with self-storage? And did that, you know, muddy the waters in terms of the offering at all? Yeah, or? it's a great question. The answer is no. Really? Uh, I, I got very, very little um, pushback on that. What I did realize, though, is, you know, and I was syndicating previous to that, right? A lot of big multifamily across the country. Uh, the Top Golf we brought in here in uh, Utah County. I've been there several times. I think it'd be every time I go there. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. My partners and I. That was that was a that was a really fun project. You know, syndication and and a project. But you know, some inland retail. You know, kind of the whole gamut of different um, commercial real estate assets. And I love that syndication model. And so when I switched over to the fund model, I, I, there were a few, uh, you know, probably a few dozen investors that actually didn't like the fund model as well mm -hmm. as an actual syndication. I'd say primarily because in a syndication, you can see the underlying asset, you know what it is, you can, you can, you can visualize it. Uh, and so, whereas in a fund, you're generally investing more so in the investment thesis right. and the general partners and their competence. And so, you know, it's more like betting on the jockey versus the horse. Yeah. And, but, but, but on the flip side, there, I've also had dozens of investors come in that actually love the fund model because of the diversification that it creates. And so, you know, it's just, a, it, it's not a fit for everyone. Yeah. Um, 
But I would say it was a pretty even trade-off between those that like, you know, direct project level investments versus a fund investment. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I'd love, before we get too deep into the weeds on the fund, I'd like to take a step back and, uh, you know, talk about, you know, how you kind of got up to this point in your career of, you know, lot, having a, how much do you have under management, by the way? Oh, uh, we have about a hundred and it's a little under, under a hundred, about 130,000. 130 million. 130 million AUM for a real estate fund. That's awesome. Um, so how did you how did you get to this point? Uh, where'd you get your start in real estate? And I'd love to kind of take a step back a little bit. You bet. So I grew up in a very, very low income home right here in Utah, Manti, Utah. And uh, you know, didn't really have much to to, to speak of and kind of a, a you know broken home. And and I just remember, you know, I was committed to doing whatever it took to 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 reset the standard and 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 to break through all that and create an incredible quality of life for my family and my future family. And so I was going to Snow College and um, they had a recruiting booth set up to uh, go out and sell home security systems. And so next thing you know, I knew it was going to be hard, but I saw it as an opportunity to not only get ahead financially, but to learn a lot of, you know, life skills, you know. Mm -hmm. And so next thing you know, I'm out in Chicago, Illinois, doing the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And I failed miserably at it for the first, you know, month or two. And uh, it's a long story, but uh, 80% of my team quit. Um, it was so hard. Lincoln, like, yeah. I, I don't know if you ever did summer sales. I did. You did. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, brutal. <laughs> it's not for the faint of heart. Uh, right. and it's not the easiest way to make a dollar. But, um, you know, I was able to make it through that summer and I made $31,000, which for me was life changing. Mm -hmm. It was more than my parents ever made. And, you know, it was uh, even to this day, I said, that's the most important money I've ever made in my life mm -hmm. because it was enough to come back the next year as a, as a manager and I ran the top, you know, first year man, uh, team in the first top first year team in the company made $156,000 that year, which was probably the second most important money in my life because it broke all those limiting belief systems. Yeah. You know, if you asked me when I was a, a kid or even as a young adult, like best case scenario, what I might be able to make and it would have been, you know, hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. And to be able to blow through that my second year, was really incredible. Um, and then came back the next year, you know, made a quarter million, then next year, you know, half million, just kind of grew the career from there. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where, you know, that, that earning opportunity really gave me the fuel to be able to get aggressive investing in real estate. And so I went to my CPA after that second year, with $156,000. And I said, hey, you know, what are all of your wealthy clients doing to invest and to, you know, uh, mitigate tax burden? Because mm -hmm. I felt like I was wealthy, right? Yeah. <laughs> to me, that was like, that's pretty incredible. And my CPA said they either invest in businesses or in real estate. And I thought, hey, you know what? Real estate sounds sounds fun. I don't know anything about it, but I'm going to become a student of the game and I'm just going to figure this out. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I just started, you know, trying to get proximity to people that knew more about real estate. I really believe there's power in proximity. And so just being around people that are actually doing what you want to be doing is is so empowering and motivating you know it's one thing to read about it or listen to a podcast but to be able to like sit with somebody and look at you know in, in the white of their eyes and be able to and hear their story and how they did what they did mm -hmm. i'm always like hey if you can do this like, it can't be that hard you know right. and, and so it's been really powerful for me but yeah i just committed to learning about it um the next year i, I was able to buy a few homes that were short sales at the uh, at the auction um, I'm going to summarize to keep it quick here, but I bought four townhomes that were $100,000 uh, each, paid all cash for that, right? And so that's how I started off. So four townhomes, 
a few years later, they depreciated, you know, doubled in value. Mm -hmm. And so I did what's called a 1031 exchange, right? right? So I took those four assets and 1031 exchange into four fourplexes with no additional cash out of pocket. Just that equity was enough of a down payment on the fourplexes. And so I went from four doors to 16 doors. Three years later, those fourplexes had appreciated about a, almost a quarter million dollars each. So the exact same thing, I 1031 exchanged each one of those individual fourplexes into three new fourplexes, right? So now I have 12 fourplexes. Again, no cash out of pocket. And then, you know, fast forward a few more years and the market's been amazingly, you know, yeah. it's been incredible, right? So um, a few years later, I was able to take, you know, sell two fourplexes and move that into a 20plex and then a few other fourplexes into it. So a you two, spent 1030 your mind. Just 1031 exchange. Yeah. And it's really an incredible, I love sharing that story because, you know, a lot of people are like, they want to scale and like, hey, you know, how do you have ownership in over, you know, 1200 doors across the country? And it's actually, it, I call it the velocity of money and just paying attention to, your equity in your assets and 1031 exchange is such an incredible, you know, tax shelter, if you will, a tax tool to be able to really expand and grow a portfolio. And yes, you're pushing, you know, you're, you're kicking that can down the road on the taxes, but mm -hmm. with depreciation recapture, but if I keep 1031 exchanging, I'm just gonna continue to keep doing the same thing and get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger assets. And what's really crazy is right now with the current United States tax code is, you know, when I pass away, uh, my children actually would, um, you know, would receive my entire portfolio of real estate with a step up basis. And so they actually don't have to have any recapture of depreciation. So they can literally kick that can down the road and they, they you know, get this entire, this, 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 hopefully this empire of real estate with no tax liability tied to it. And so anyway, that 1031 change has been really, really incredible. But uh yeah, so another goal of my, in my life, a motto has always been always do bigger deals than yesterday. And so, you know, the fourplexes were fun. And then, you know, I started getting a smaller multifamily and then a large multifamily. Um, and that was the progression there. Uh, after having done about a dozen of those, I was like, hey, you know what, what's next? And for me, that was to launch a fund. And so that was kind of the, the, the progression there. What's up, guys? If you want to learn more about how to run an investment fund, how to start an investment fund, how they're structured, um, how I became a fund manager, just visit our YouTube channel for more free value. So you, how much uh, in real estate assets, if you don't mind me asking, did you have when you started taking on other people's money to do deals? Great question. Um, I haven't actually tried to quantify that. I... Uh, what I, what I did quantify very clearly was I, I really wanted financial freedom, which yeah. I define as having enough passive recurring income to pay for your family's cost of living. And so when I was 30 years old, I remember very clearly, uh, I was on a Sunday, I sat down in my home office and I said, hey, I've been talking about financial freedom for a long time. There's a big difference between wanting something and being committed to it. And so I sat down for four hours, uh, got a spreadsheet out, and I just tracked out exactly what I needed to do to be able to create that financial freedom. It's actually a very simple equation. You know, take a spreadsheet and it's, you know, how much money do you need? Let's say it's a quarter million dollars a year. Next line item is what's my current passive income? Say you have $50,000 coming in from a townhome or whatever. And the next line item is, you know, what's the gap there? So $200,000. And the next line item is how many years are you committed to investing to create this true financial freedom? And for me, it was 10 years. And so then it comes out to, I just need to have $20,000 of additional passive income per year to achieve true financial freedom. And so then the next step was, okay, well, how do I wanna create that passive income? And it was rental properties. 
And so the numbers came out to being 40 rental properties. That's what I needed to get to. And so my, my, uh, my, my, my mantra became 40 by 40, right? So 40 rental properties by age 40. And I internalized that, made it super important to me. I changed all my passwords, my, you know, my home screen on my phone. Everything was 40 by 40. And um, which, by the way, there's real power that comes from writing those type of goals down and, and having that level of clarity and intentionality behind it. And so I was able to hit that goal when I was 36. And it's actually when I retired from my career in door-to-door sales and went full-time into real estate. And uh, I reset that goal from 40 by 40 to 1,000 by 40. Um, Because at that point I had, you know, some confidence and some competence and I had, you know, a team of advisors and I learned a lot. And so reset that goal to ownership in 1,000 doors by 40. And I actually hit that goal one month before I turned 41. So, uh, but again, it's just writing it down. Like it's yeah. really, it's really, really powerful, man. And it's not just writing it down, but it's, it, it's, it's the intentionality you tie to it, right? It's not just another zero and another property. It's the freedom that we get from that. It's, it's the quality of life for my children. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the experiences I can go and create for me and my family and the people I love and I care about. And so I really feel like the more you can tie purpose to our financial goals, not only is is it more is it easier to hit those goals, but it's actually more fun. It's it's more meaningful because there's purpose. It's not just about another again another another dollar. Yeah, well that's awesome. And so then forty one is when or no when did you launch Axia? Uh, forty yeah forty years old. Yeah, about forty years old. And so to tell me talk to me a little bit about that. How did you identify your partners there? How did you just get that started and paint the vision and objective for Axia? So again, I, I explained why I, I like the fund model, right? right? So I was personally investing in it. It just made a lot of sense. And, uh, and again, I, you know, I foresaw a lot of these, these choppy waters that we're seeing now in the markets. And so I was like, Hey, how can we proactively, you know, navigate these waters, uh, the best we can. Um, and then she had some like-minded people that, uh, were actually thinking similarly that wanted to go in the fun world. Um, and a lot of those guys were actually in the same the same circles. Uh, a few of them came from Vivint, Vivint Solar as yeah. well. And, uh, and another partner was uh, one of the gentlemen that I've been a lot of business with previously, a lot of investments. And mm-hmm. so it was just very organic. You know, it's it's interesting. You call it law of attraction, <laughs> or I call it, but you know, when you know what you really want, um, it just seems to come come together um, pretty naturally. I, I will say it's very, very important though that you choose the right partners. I feel like in business, you know, a business partnership is actually I mean, it's, it, it can be even harder to do than like an actual marriage you yeah. know, sometimes. And so you really have to be careful with, with your partners. Um, and I'm grateful for the partners that we have on our team. It's incredible. It's a, uh, you know, you can say, and I get the question all the time, like, hey, why did you stop being a syndicator and go into, you know, a fund management role? And I feel like you can go fast by yourself, but you can go far with a team, you know, and it really create a lot of impact. You've got to have a team around you to be able to, uh, yeah, just go build together. And frankly, it's a lot more fun. Because you have, you know, people, you have a sounding board, you mm-hmm. have an actual team where there's synergy and collaboration along the way. So, um, yeah, we teamed up and, you know, I'm proud to say we, we, we've never had one employee that we've lost from day one. Wow. Um, really? We've actually added on a few strategic partners and including Brandon Fugel. Oh, everybody yeah. knows, everybody knows Brandon's name. Like you literally can't drive down, you know, the freeway <laughs> without seeing Brandon's name everywhere. Um, and so we're honored to have him as a partner, uh, in our, in our current fund and we're looking forward to, uh, 
a few additional offers in the future with yeah. Brandon. Um, but it, you know, Adam Long, I mean, he's probably the smartest guy I know. You know, he's a uh, Stanford uh, top of his class and uh, Harvard, like just just very very intelligent uh, and competent partners. I think that's really really important. And so, yeah, looking forward, um, we're looking. So we're on our our third offering right now, and we're also doing an SPV. And by the way, we we talked about funds quite a bit. And I mentioned how some investors like those direct investments or like a syndication. And so what we're actually doing nowadays is we're we're also offering SPVs, so a special purpose vehicle, where partners can come in direct level, right? So they're not oh, in the they fund, do. right? So the fund will participate, but then also the SPV. As an example, right now we're building a $50 million industrial warehouse uh, right here in Salt Lake County. Mm -hmm. And it's a brand new development. And our fund is putting in you know a large allocation but we can't put in too big of an allocation because we want to maintain diversification in the fund and so about half of the equity is coming in through our fund and the other half through an spv and it's interesting because again some people so we give them the option which one do you want so like i oh, definitely the fund i love the fund structure and other people are like nah definitely the spv so it's really just catering to again to the uh, investment objectives of your clients right well when you get a risk of money right uh, to like uh you know tax money that's coming out of a self-directed ira or rolling it over those need to go into the spvs to recognize the same tax benefits um so something we i conversations i have you know a lot of our our my portfolio funds you know they run into the problem with syndicators to fund managers and uh they have all these investors that just want to stay on their spvs and their syndicates and they say well they actually require well as long as you meet a minimum commitment into the fund of half a million million you know whatever x amount then you, we can let you in on these on these deals and those uh first rider refusals become very important as well as you start growing your business and start working with larger and larger allocators uh like institutional grade so i think i think that's awesome um you know as Along that same thread, though, it sounds like the majority of your LP base is high net worths right now, right? Yeah, the majority, definitely mostly retail investors. Um, yeah. Every investor is accredited. Uh, majority are, you know, high net worth and quite a few ultra high net worth individuals. Um, you know, and again, I'm really proud of the the traction that we have and, you know, having close to 400 people that are entrusting for their capital. But at the same time, they're, you know, the relatively smaller check sizes, you know, six, six average you know, $150,000, $200,000, somewhere in that range. Um, but looking forward, you know, our, our goal with Axie is to become a multi-billion dollar investment firm. Uh, frankly speaking, our goal is to be best in class, right, yeah. in what we do. And the only way we get there is with larger check sizes. Right. So, you know, kind of the natural evolution of the progression of the business is going from focusing on that retail investor to more, you know, family office and ultra high net individuals and RIAs. And then eventually more, you know, actual institutional money. And so, but with that being said, one of my personal goals is to always make sure that we carve off some space for those retail investors, right? Um, you know, I'm really grateful for what real estate's done for me personally over mm -hmm. the last 20 years. And so I want to be able to still create value for people that were, were where I was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And so, you know, as long as I can, I want to always make sure I have some space for those. So I'm, I'm grateful for them, right? And I want them to be able to come back as repeat investors as well in, in these offerings. But eventually, you know, as you scale, you've got to look, you know, at bigger, bigger check sizes along the way. The economics start to make more sense. Yeah. Yeah. And the investor relation, just the amount of, you know, just the, the relationship management side of the business. 
mm-hmm. when you get to a certain point, it's it becomes a lot. You know? A lot, a lot of uh, K ones you're sending out. It really, it really is. <laughs> it really is. But but again, you know, it's, for me, it's, I get a lot of fulfillment out of being able to create value for people. Especially, I mean, I probably have, I mean, a hundred to two hundred of my investors are actually guys I used to manage and work with in you know door to door sales, and so to be able to create value for them. You know, I used to be from a leadership perspective, and now it's actually creating monetary value with their investment opportunities. It's been really fun, man. One of my personal goals, you know, kind of going, getting a little personal here, but is uh, I'm committed to creating direct value for at least 10 million people in my life. And I want to help at least 1,000 people become financially free through real estate and passive income. And so, you know, that's one of the things I love about a fund, though, is you can create massive impact for so many more people. And so it really is about, you know, scale and impact. So as you start to scale, uh, you know, like what do you anticipate your biggest hurdles are going to be? Is it going to be infrastructure? Is it just raising the money? Is it the deal flow? Is it the product sets? You know, what does that look like for you guys? I think that the biggest challenge, at least in the current economy, is capital. Yeah. Right. It's it's a uh, it's become a little bit more difficult. Um, people are just, you know, cautious right now, uh, kind of puckered up a little bit mm-hmm. you know, with uncertainty on what's going to happen in the future. Um, from there, I think that it probably goes to just making sure you have the right SOPs in place, you know, to, you know, when you look at institutional money, they have so many, the checklist on their due diligence is so extensive. I mean, it's, you know, some of them are, you know, it's a 40 page document and it's so, it's looking at every single process, hire, you know, background checks, the entire, all the, all the, all the, all the safeguards that are in place for the fund, right? And so just the complexity of making sure that we're always operating perfectly correctly, right? And it's, it's, that's, that's probably, and it's something we're going to, we're, we're going to cross that bridge. And I think we've already done a really good job kind of building our, our approach at Axie has been to basically build it correctly from the beginning and, and put all that hard work and infrastructure into it. And even though maybe it's a little bit overboard right now, it's going to, you know, in the future, that's what we have to have in place to be able to attract larger check sizes. So that's kind of a long answer, but I think the biggest thing is probably capital. And secondly, it's just making sure you have all the right systems and processes in place. Well, yeah, I, I love that you say that because truly the institutional capital doesn't come unless those boxes are checked, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like the capital comes first. You know, you've got to build a business that's worthy of taking on, you know, those larger checks, you know, before they before they come. So I love that you you added that in there. Um, you know, on the human capital side, what, like how many employees does your firm firm have right now? We, uh, we're, we have about 10 employees. Uh-huh. Um, we, uh, we're, we're very nimble right now, yeah. you know, and that's interesting. I want to mention that I love the size of our firm as it is right now. A lot, a lot of investors are attracted to the fact that we are so nimble, right? Yeah. We, you know, you get in these really big, you know, REITs and huge hedge funds and, and they have this box they've got to operate in and. So as, but as an emerging manager for some investors that, you know, it's actually very attractive because they, generally speaking, historically, uh, emerging managers do create larger uh, or better returns. Yeah. Uh, there's more volatility, there's more risk in it, but the overall, the average return structure is significantly better with emerging emerging managers. And so, um, so it's, it, it's just an interesting kind of dichotomy of, 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 of scaling and growing quickly, but at the same time, making sure that we are, you know, um, sometimes a business slows fast, right? Mm-hmm. You got to make sure you build it right, have the right people on the bus and the right seats, and then you really can throw gas on the fire. And I feel like that's what we've done so far. You know, and I think 
it, we, we've set up the foundation now where we can really go and build something special on top of this. And when I say that, I want to be sensitive to that because at the same time, I think, you know, raising, you know, having over a hundred million dollars, you know, in the first two and a half years is, you know, that's, that's a pretty big feat. I'm really proud of it. Yeah. But uh, I feel like we've just gotten to a point where now we can really, really go and build something special. Yeah. Hey guys. So we recently just launched this community called Wall Street Rebel Insider. It's an awesome group where you can network with other emerging fund managers, get, you know, up-to-date insights. It's it's a really cool, uh, you know, group and community on Discord. I think you guys are going to love it. I definitely go uh, check it out if you want to, you know, if you're interested in this industry and you want to keep a better pulse on things. Thanks. So I think just a big conversation that a lot of emerging managers have is, you know, what should I do in-house versus what should I outsource? Uh, you know, can you talk to us about maybe some of the roles that you do outsource in your firm, just from a from a management perspective? Uh, yeah, you bet. Um, so the, we we actually do with a you know small team. We 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 pretty much do all of it. On it. We we do all the acquisitions, all the underwriting, um, asset management. Um, we do all the marketing in house, our branding, our dispositions. Um, you know, we, we're working towards becoming a fully vertically integrated investment firm. Yeah. And we're pretty close to that. We have a, a development arm. We have all those things in place. The, the one thing that comes to mind that we definitely outsource right now is property management. Yeah. You know, you've got to have a massive scale to make sense to bring that in-house. So right now what we do is we just look for the very, very, very best in class third-party property management companies mm -hmm. in those markets that we're operating in. Mm -hmm. And I found that those groups have, you know, a lot more intricate detail in terms of the actual sub-market versus somebody here in Utah trying to figure out, you know, what works in Kansas City versus what works in Toledo, Ohio versus in, you know, Rio, Nevada. So I think that's probably the right play until you get to, you know, closer to, you know, eight to 10,000 units is where, in my opinion, where it makes sense to bring that in-house. So then you'll start looking at setting up your own property management company yeah. and be a, your own service provider of the yep. fund. You got it. So that, that, I mean, that's really the only, the only you know, big service that we're not doing in-house right now. Yeah. Um, Compliance is out. Is you guys doing that? You know, great question. Sorry. We do. We do have a, uh, you know, we do third party party audits. You know, it's all third party out, outsourced, but we also have our, our uh, fund management is, uh, is managed. Or, third audit, party administrator. Third party administrator. Yeah, yeah. As well. And we use Juniper Square. For, oh yeah. They're for fantastic. Yeah. They've really taken a turn over the past uh, five years, they really developed their tech stack out. But I, but I you know, in my opinion, and actually ask as a question, I feel like that's always good to have that as a an outsourced um, service because it gives investors peace of mind knowing that you know there's somebody else outside of the firm that is basically managing is 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 overseeing the processes and managing the management company right same thing with a third party audit every year yeah no totally i mean you know fund administrators you should there, there's no reason why you shouldn't have a third-party administrator. Compliance, uh, it's not practical to have your own CCO at the beginning, right? Just like it doesn't make sense to have, really have a full-time CFO sometimes at the beginning of a firm, you know, where fractionalized, you know, human capital totally serves the needs. So yeah, I think you're, I think you're, I think that's spot on, and you know, very in line with industry standards. But as soon as you start, uh, you know, getting your structured entities like a registered investment advisory, do you guys have one of those yet? You will soon, you know, as you start to scale. Um, uh, he shook his head no for the listeners there. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, you will soon. And that's a that's a whole nother beast. And 
the the lovely pains of of growing an asset management firm, right? Yep. But you know, I like the fact that we we, we our goal is to basically manage the entire process and control the process, yeah. right? Which is, you know, a lot of funds don't do that. They're more fund of funds, where it's more about just raising capital. You know, a lot of local groups here in Utah, um, they're doing really well. They're, but it's more about just soliciting the capital and then plugging that capital in with different deals, you know. And that's what I used to do as a syndicator a lot of times as well. With a fund, you know, we take a lot of pride in the fact that we literally own the entire process from, from due, from, you know, from finding the deal to management to dispositions to the entire process is basically on our shoulders. And so it is, a, frankly speaking, for your listeners, it's a lot of work. Like don't, yeah. don't underestimate how much like operational bandwidth that takes to be able to do that entire process. With that being said, I love that we can actually control the experience, not only for our investors, but for the communities as well. Like we have full ownership over, you know, whether it's a, we hit out of the park or if we lose on it, it's on us. Well, I, I actually love that. I really do. Cause I think I, I have a lot of people that come to me and they're, they say, well, I've got this other guy I can give this money to, and I'm basically going to be a middleman. And by doing so, you're essentially diluting your own value prop. Right. But I, you know, what, from what I'm hearing from you, like you are the value prop at Axia. Right. And uh, I think that's really meaningful right now. And it will be meaningful in, in coming years. And, you know, by you have to learn that step. Right. You have to learn how to be the CIO. You have to learn how to underwrite, to acquire, add value and then sell those assets at a, at a premium. So I think that's I think it's awesome. Thanks. I appreciate that. It, yeah. Again, it's a lot of it's a lot of work. Like uh, it's probably even more work than I originally assumed it was when I went into that into this uh, into the structure. But it's been awesome. And, and a part of that, I think, why it's working so well for us is because all of our our GPs and managing partners have a very robust background, not just in real estate, but in in business. You yeah. know, one of our partners owns at you know hundreds of restaurants and, and food and beverage concepts, and then. You know, coming from a, a door-to-door sales background, like the the, the principles and the, the skills we learned from that. You know, another one of our partners, you know, has created a, a multi-billion-dollar uh, firm. Uh, Brandon Fugel's experience, right? And anyway, so just just a very extensive, robust background where we can bring those elements into into real estate. You know, and one of the one of the terms that I I coined for Axia is experiential investing. If you go to our website, it's the, on the home page, big font, experiential investing. And can I tell you a quick story on how? Yeah, I'd that? love to hear about that. Yeah, because this is one thing I, I keep saying I'm so proud of it, but this is the one I'm really, really, really proud of. Um, you know, it, so what it means is it, it's not just about creating an ROI for our investors, return on investment. It's also an ROE, a return on experience, and that experience comes from several things uh one is we held a monthly webinar and it's called an experiential webinar we have the top real estate guys in the country come on and just teach for 45 minutes followed by 30 minutes of q a so you can ask them anything you want um, every time that we have a deal we're going to close on we do a full one hour webinar full transparency this is how we found the deal here's our underwriting model we actually share that live you know that's a awesome. webinar here's how we source the debt here's our business plan here's our value add you know strategy the entire full transparency, which very, very rarely, actually I've never seen uh, an investment firm where they pull back the curtains and they show you the back office and how they actually do what they do. Um, but what I found is that, you know, a lot of people are investors. They want to be doing commercial real estate. They just lack the, the confidence or, or the competence on how to do it. And so if we can create value for them, not only on an ROI on their investment, but also help teach them and educate them on how we do what we do, 
that's been received very, very, very well. And it's a very unique value proposition because I haven't seen anybody else do that. And so that it's been, and, 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 and for me personally, you know, when I coined that term, it really came from the fact that when I stepped out of this leadership role as a VP of sales and when I was managing hundred, well, you know, thousands of employees, hundreds at a time, I, I really missed the human side of it because I ended up in my office looking at spreadsheets and looking on ML, the MLS and, you know, looking at all these numbers and, you know, real estate deals. But I really missed that interpersonal communication, that, that development side of it. And so the question I asked, like, how can I, you know, kind of bring that relationship side of the business into real estate? And so that's where the initial idea came from. But it's been awesome, man. It's so fun. Like, well, it's so cool. Like, I mean, so many LPs don't get that experience, right? Uh, and, and a lot of people, they don't, you know, they get weary and worried that, you know, they invested in a Ponzi scheme or that they don't know what their money is being put to use as. And um, I, I think especially for those technical minds out there that want to understand and be exposed, like what a cool value prop. And it's not it's not like it's easy to have all those transparency, you know, to be so transparent. Right. I mean, it's additional burden on the management, uh, you know, to do so, to host those webinars, to do all those things. But I think that's fantastic. Thanks, man. And I like swag. We, you know, when you come on as an investor, you get a swag box. And yeah, you know, Christmas cards. Like we do a lot to try to, you know, really create an experience out of out of investing. But with that being said, you know, some investors they love it, they eat it up. Some don't care about it that yeah. they just want the ROI. Yeah. And that's totally fine too. I'd say about but the majority of our partners are, are very engaged with all with all that. And you know, another thing that I've noticed is a side as a benefit of that or a side effect is, and I won't give the exact numbers here, but uh you know, subscription documents, industry standards, probably, you know, you get an investor to sign a document uh, commitment, maybe it's 80 to 85% of the time they'll actually come through and wire their funds in. You have about a 15% attrition rate. No, no, jet. I'd say in the mark, in the mark, in the oh, market, in the market. real estate uh, I, I funds. And um, with, uh, I, probably, I don't know if I get actual numbers, but we uh, are incredibly proud of uh, it's 99% plus. Wow. And, and I think a lot of that is because of those touch points and that transparency and that focus on, on adding value and creating value. In fact, the, the name Axia Partners, when we came up with the name, it's, it's, we, we, we chose that name because it's Greek for to create value. Oh, cool. That's and, awesome. And so it's to create value for our partners. But also every one of our projects that we do across the country, it's always, almost always it's a, very, it's a heavy focus on value add, right? Yeah. yeah, the traditional value add, you know, new appliances, you know, new new, new carpet, paint, right, all that kind of stuff. But even on that note, we, we take more of an innovative approach to it, where it's not just new carpet, new paint, new granite countertops. We do a lot more in terms of more of a modern approach to value add. So it's search engine optimization, it's online presence, it's using social media to create uh, more awareness. And so a lot of these assets we buy across the country, there's no social media presence at all and so we'll go and create that um it's adding you know dog spas <laughs> it's a big thing right now it's adding like we work shared office spaces and multifamily. but they're very unique um value propositions that that the market really wants right now and so that's like because i always tell people like what is your edge right like what is your strategic edge because as you start to become a more established firm it's not like you know when you go raise money from high net worth investors it's uh you're selling them on the benefits of real estate, 
right? Uh, when you go sell allocators, these capital allocators and institutions, they're looking at 20 different real estate firms a day and saying, you know, why you instead of all the other, uh, you know, real estate firms. So it sounds like I'd love to go deeper a little bit on kind of your edge as a firm and where you feel like uh, you perform, you outperform, uh, you know, other players in the marketplace. So first thing that comes to mind would just be our investment thesis, right? Yeah. Recession resilient real estate, like, the timing on that was perfect in 20, you know, two, two and a half years ago. Yeah. It, and it's even more relevant right now today. So I think just how we've positioned ourselves from day one was really, really important. Um, the second thing I would say is, is the core competencies of the management team and our own individual track records before we came into this. And I say this humbly, but you know, it's, uh, you know, the track records of every one of our partners coming into it. Um, I, I'm, I'm very proud of those track records. And, you know, and another thing that was nice was, you know, we all came into this, I guess it's humbly, but uh, we were all already independently wealthy where we yeah. didn't need to take salaries. We don't need to take things off the table. And, you know, it'd probably blow your mind if I told you how much, if it, like we haven't, we're not taking things off the table along yeah. the way, right? It's all about the long-term carry and making sure we win for our partners. You know, we use a European waterfall, which really puts the LPs first. And so, for us, you know, it's a five-year five-year funds, and so we literally work for basically five years, you know, without taking any chips off the table along the way. Um, and the investors get paid back first, plus a prep rate before we even get to participate in any of the carry. And so it really is about we have to win big for our partners, right? Or else we're literally working for free along the way. And so, but having partners that were able to do that with me was really meaningful, right? And, 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 and that's rare, I think, because usually this is the livelihood of, you know, it's their income source for the fund managers. And so they've got to be taking, you know, chips off the table as you go, which again is, is, is there's nothing wrong with that, but it does sometimes take away from being able to grow the business quickly. Um, another edge would be that folks on experiential investing, like that's, you know, and the transparency. I think that's something that really sets us apart from, from everybody else. Again, I've never once seen an investment firm that talks about like, transparency like, like we do and, and the educational side of it. Um, I would almost reference it to, you know, being a partner with Axia is like joining a mastermind that's it's an, ex it's an exclusive mastermind that's free for our partners. And so that's kind of the approach that we try to take with this. Well, I love that, man. You know, so many limited, you know, there's there's LPs, right? Your limited partners. And then there's the GPs, the general partners, you that's managing the firm. And I feel like so many people exclude, they don't treat their limited partners as partners, right? Uh, they just treat them as a check. And in reality, they're partners in your business. They're vested in it. You know, their their money's on the line just as much as yours. So. I love that. You know, do you guys do any sort of special economics for large investors? Uh, how did you guys create your your waterfall? Uh, is it subject to change? You plan on changing it? Uh, if, if you mind sharing some of those details. Yeah, there's, that's a big question. There's a lot. And that's a, yeah. we could do a whole podcast <laughs> right. on that specifically. So so I'll start by, with a principle that I learned a long time ago, which is when you, and, it, and this goes for anybody listening to this podcast and maybe wants to launch a syndication business or you know, anything where you're raising other people's money. Right. And that is to always make sure you put the investor first. And when you first get started, it's not so much about what can I make in, in a profit. It's more about, it should be more about what, what am I going to, what's the education and the relationships I'm going to build by doing this. And so like when I first got started in syndicating for multifamily, I found the number one best, uh, the number one syndicator for multifamily in the country. And I, I was able to gain proximity to him. And I helped him, you know, with a few different things, including raising capital. 
and uh, and I got some a little bit of, you know co-sponsored GP, but frankly speaking, it was crumbs. Like it wasn't yeah. it wasn't very much, right? But I learned so much from being around the top guy in the industry, and 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 and, and learning who his advisors are. Like he, his legal team is now is my legal team. Oh, cool. right. My tax strategist is his tax strategist. So it's a it's a really interesting shortcut to be able to get around the very best people in the industry is just to um, look for ways to create value for them and 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 don't pay as much attention as to what's in it for me right now, right? Mm-hmm. And so same thing when I started doing syndications and and same thing on our first first fund offering, and it's a very very generous waterfall in our opinion. Uh, it's definitely you know below market, and and so it's not always going to be the case, but it's just about making sure we win for our investors. And 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 frankly, it's 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 not just because we just want to be like nice guys. And do that. We want repeat investors, right? right. We want to make oh, sure we win for them. Yep, and then come back in and they redeploy with us over and over and over and over and over. And so, um, so the way we structure that is, and the same thing is on our current fund offering right now. It's uh, two classes of shares, and so a larger allocation. It gets you an 80-20 split on the carry, and then a smaller allocation is a 70-30 split. So it's a natural incentive to come in with a larger, you know, investment and check size. And then uh, another way we've done that with the capital calls, which has been received very well, is you can choose either come in 100% upfront on the first capital call, or you can choose to spread that out over, you know, with one capital call per quarter throughout the year. And so for people with any, you know, liquidity constraints, that's a little bit easier for them. Mm-hmm. And so that's helped us out a lot as well. Um, we also agreed to give 100% of the tax benefits to our LPs, which again is definitely not market. You know, right. usually you take a 20, 30, you know, your carry on the depreciation right. as well. But again, we're giving 100% to our investors. And that's probably going to be the last time we do that on this fund because, um, you know, there's a lot of, that's it's a, anyway. You get, so we want to win on these first ones. So the, the waterfall, 80 uh, 20, 70 30. Um, investors get paid back a hundred percent of their principal first and foremost. Second highest priority is get them the eight percent preferred return, right? And then once that's taken place, whatever the pool of profits is left over, then that's the you know 70, 30, 80, 20 split. And so again, investors get paid back first plus a prep rate, and then and only then do we get to participate in the carry. Mm-hmm. So we just feel like that's a, it's, it's a it's a compelling um it, it, it shows our investors where our priorities. Yeah. And frankly, it puts a lot of pressure on us. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Uh, you know, very along the same vein, you know, how do you guys think about in terms of distributing your capital? Uh, you know, there's always this decision of when you have maybe a refi proceeds from a refi or you're kicking off rental uh, income, you know, are you distributing that regularly back to investors, giving them a, a small check every month or quarter or semi-annually? Or are you reinvesting that and, you know, promising them the carrot at the end? How do you, how do you think about, you know, your distribution cycle? The beautiful thing about, you know, a fund is you can literally write the rules in your PPM, yeah. right? So in our first fund offering, we are able to churn capital. So we'll have a disposition and we can immediately redeploy that money again and go do the same thing, you know. So, so we can do that basically twice within the, capital. You know, within the three to five year fund life. And so it's a little more of an aggressive approach where you can, you know, hopefully generate a higher IRR for your investors because you're continuing to redeploy that and, and make put that money to work. Yeah. Um, uh, on, our, on our current fund, we are, we're not doing that. So as soon as there's a disposition, it's an immediate uh, repayment. Uh, it basically lo- uh, lowers your capital account, so it goes out to the investors immediately. And so, um, 
But one one thing I'll share, you know, getting you know being open with you here is on our first fund, you know, we have a seven percent prep rate, and we uh, plan on paying that out along the way. However, you know, it, it's all very heavy value add, and so every asset is requiring you know millions of dollars of improvements. Mm-hmm. And I quickly realized, hey, you know what? If we're going to be paying out a prep rate when there's actually not positive cash flow coming in, right? We're literally just taking investors' money and and you know coming in one door and then out the other door as a as a prep rate distribution. It doesn't make sense, yeah. right? And so we had to tell our investors, hey guys, just just you know we're in the middle of this J curve. You know we're really excited about the capital improvements and you know rent projections look really really strong, actually even better than what we were projecting originally in the performa. However, with that being said, there's going to be a few quarters here without any any distributions because there is no actual cash flow, positive cash flow from the from the portfolio, right? Yeah. And so it said it, and everybody received that very well, but it was just a lot of explaining, you know? right? And so one thing, if I did that over again, it would just be to really communicate to the investors, say hey, we want to pay a seven percent prep rate, we're committed to that. However, if it's a heavy value add fund, you know, there's going to be a period where you guys be patient, and then there's going to be a catch up where you're going to be made and made whole, mm-hmm. you know. From day one, but there's going to be a lag there on those distributions. So much of it is just managing cash flow. I love that story, and thank you for for sharing that. I think that's I think that's awesome, man. I've got so many questions. I would love to ask you. We're running short on time here. I want to ask you. I want to ask you this: Is uh, how is the current rate environment, uh, you know, affecting you and your firm, if at all? Um, are you slower on deploying funds right now? Has it decreased IRRs, or you know, and how are you navigating just the current? high rate environment so if my director of investments was here he'd be able to give you like a very articulate like an impressive answer yeah <laughs> my, my answer is pretty simple uh in our first fund we have an average blended rate of about four percent and it's all long-term fixed interest rate so we're really really excited about that and yeah. in fact the timing there was was perfect hey guys thanks for listening as you know we don't run ads on this channel so if you could really help me out if this podcast has added any value to you or your business um, in our current fund, we are, so our first project is actually this, our anchor project is a $50 million industrial uh, warehouse. And we're able to secure some incredible, um, financing on the construction side of it. Um, but besides that, we, we've, we've, we've actually been, the key right now has just been patience. You know, uh, what we believe is in the market, there's still a, a pretty big Delta between where sellers believe their their valuations are mm-hmm. versus where the actual market value is because of interest rates and there, so that there's that lag there and and we're finally starting to see it catch up to where that delta is is, is narrowing but we still feel like there's there's more um softness and and, and and price corrections coming and so it's really been a game of just being patient right now yeah and, and holding for a little bit longer i don't necessarily think that rates are going to go a lot lower than they are in the next two years. But I do think that price points, because with cap rates and overall valuations, we'll see further uh, softening through Q4 and potentially into Q1. So it's really been a game of just being really careful and very, very, very selective right now with acquisitions. Um, Two more things to share. What we really have found success with, though, is looking at assumable debt, right? So example we have a deal in montgomery it's you know it's 3.85 percent fixed interest and it's assumable right so we can come in acquire that asset and take over that low interest payment um another one is to uh what we're really excited about right now is is seller financing right so yeah. you find you find a buyer that's willing to carry the note for you you know at four or five percent it makes a lot of sense 
And so those are, those are, that's how we're navigating things right now. It's definitely a different environment, but we're, but, but one last thing I just want to say is we overall though, the overall sentiment is, is very opportunistic right now because there are a lot of, uh, you know, multifamily deals and specifically in, in, in self stores where they've got to refinance their debt and they're not going to really hit their DSCR uh, requirements mm -hmm. with the current interest rates. And so, you know, we, uh, we're calling it DSCR Armageddon, you know, and so we're going to be some really incredible buying opportunities. And so more than anything, we see this as a really interesting time. Uh, uh, let me say this Bridger, uh, your partner, he shared a slide with me uh, a few months back and it showed that the most successful real estate funds are those that have launched during economic downturns. Yeah. Right. So main, my biggest answer here is, we're really excited about it. Yeah. So no, that, that is awesome. I was just going to say, I love the point you made about, you know, th there's somewhat, uh, maybe early real estate principles of like, Oh, you don't have money to take down a deal, go sell or finance or, Oh, you know, uh, go buy some, assume someone's interest rate. But, and I love that you're applying those on a massive scale because I think it's, it's ridiculous not to. And I think some people think that they're, maybe over sophisticated or, you know, they, they don't need those types of financing. But if, if that is there, then man, the, the contribution that they can have to your fund is just, I mean, why would you not? You're doing your LPs a disservice by not doing it. So I love that. Um, okay. A couple rapid fire questions uh, as we wrap up here. Um, what is something you wish you knew uh, when you just first started out that you know now? The fact that going bigger is not always necessarily harder. Uh, you know, I started off with those four townhomes and some fourplexes, which again, it worked out great. But uh, what I've realized is that sometimes doing even bigger deals is actually even easier than smaller deals. And so, you know, I wish I wouldn't have kind of messed around with the single family homes, would have gone straight to multifamily. I just wish I would have thought, thought bigger, you know, and, and, and frankly speaking, Lincoln, my whole life, I look back at it, like when I was 20 years old, I was really proud of what I was doing. But then I was 30 looking back at 20, I'm like, man, I was playing small. And then I was at 30 <laughs> years old, I'm like, man crushing it this is awesome right yeah yeah 40 looking back i'm like man i was i could have been playing so much bigger right and i hope that when i'm 50 look back at 40 and feel that way and actually hope when i'm 100 looking back at 90 i still feel that same way like i could have been doing better right could have been doing more but i think it's just thinking bigger yeah i love that um what are some of your maybe either investment or business pet peeves i, I would say on the investing front my biggest pet peeve is poor communication like if I deploy my capital somebody and I can't get an answer, I can't get a phone a return on a phone call. That's probably probably my biggest pet peeve. Um, in business, I'm gonna say lack of taking ownership. Like yeah. when somebody won't actually two things: the so lack of ownership, and secondly, I'm gonna say just not doing what you say you're gonna do. Like yeah. if, if to me, that's like the most important thing I want to see in a business partner is. If you say you're going to do something, you're going to do it. And having that level of trust and confidence. Yeah. On the flip, any any habits that you feel like have really contributed to your success? I'll give a quick list here. I'd say number one is having a growth mindset and realizing that, you know, wherever we're at in life, it's on it's on us. You know, it's not anybody else's fault. And it can be hard to accept that sometimes, but I feel like that's the key to being able to make change and to be able to become the best version of yourself is taking full accountability and responsibility really embracing delayed gratification, you know, a lot of the harvest, like I think it's a lost, that's a lost skill. You know, nowadays people want instant gratification they want the dopamine hit immediately mm -hmm. and being able to lean into the fact that sometimes 
you know, the things that are the most worthwhile, you don't see the results for, it takes time. Yeah. And, and that can be really hard. But, um, and the next thing I'd want to say is, is one of my models in life has been, if something scares you, it usually means you should just do it. So if it scares you, just do it. And I've, 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 even in real estate, sometimes like if it's kind of a scary deal, sometimes it's, it's the most profitable deal because other people are just scared of it because it, it's, it, you know, it's a little scary. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if you just lean into doing the things that, that scare you, um, you know, that's how we grow. And, you know, in my life right now, there's only a few things that really scare me. There's probably only three things that, uh, still scare me. One of those is, um, is like stand-up comedy and public speaking. Hmm. And so I actually hired a, uh, a stand-up comedy coach last month. Awesome. And I'm committed to doing that in the, ne the next year. Um, open water swimming. I've done a few competitive like Ironmans and whatnot with like Iron Cowboy and, mm -hmm. and some of the guys. And I just think I'm not, I, I can't, I, I don't know what it is about me, but I'm not very buoyant. And so I'm working on that. Third one is my daughter. I've got three beautiful daughters and I do have them dating. Like it still kind of scares me too. I don't know how to, how to manage that one very well. But um, besides that though, everything that scared me, I just, I just done it, you know, went right with the bulls uh, last month in Spain. And, so cool. Yeah. You know, like Mount Everest excursions and, you know, skydiving eight times. Wait, you got to tell, you got to tell people about running with the bulls. Like tell oh, them it was about wild. Experience. It was a, uh, <clears throat> it was a bucket list. I, I put on my bucket list when I was 27 and had a few friends reach out. They're going to Spain and, and I was like, hey, you know, let's, let's go, let's, let's do this. And so six days, uh, I knew it was going to be intense, but it was actually so much more intense than I thought it was going to be. Really cool experience. And we're, we're down there. Um, I mean, the quick, the quick story on it is the Bulls ended up running a, a full minute faster than their average pace, uh, which resulted in 19 hospitalizations, two oh critical injuries. I mean, the videos are just incredible. That is awesome. And, and uh but the biggest risk was actually all the people around you. So like when I saw the first bull, you know, you just want to hold your ground as long as you can. I turned to run and immediately there's two people already down in front of me. So I had to hurdle over them. I'm 42 year old. I, 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 hurt, I haven't hurdled for, it's been a long time since I was hurdling something. Yeah. Hurdled two people, kept going. Then there's a, a huge pile of about 15 people all piled up on top of themselves, tripping <sighs> over each other. So I actually had to cut out in front of the bulls literally right in front of the bulls and about, I don't know, five to eight feet in front of them. So the pictures look really cool. Cause it looks like I'm like trying intentionally to run right, like right in front of the bulls. Right. It's actually excited to get around this, this huge pile of people to get around that. But, um, it was, it was, it was awesome, man. It was, uh, the adrenaline lasted for a few days and um, it was an experience I'd highly recommend. Um, so it was, it was cool. But what was really fun with that trip too, though, is, uh, I have a family tradition where when my children turn 16, they can choose anywhere they want to go in the world. I'll pay for a one week trip with them, but they've got to choose the location, the excursions, the food, the cafes, learn, learn the local language and whatnot just to teach them about being more open-minded and about culture. And so my daughter was torn between going to Italy or France. And so one of my biggest, my favorite models in life is, and not, or sometimes it's not about, or it's like an end situation, yeah. right? So I came back to my daughter, I'm like, hey, let's do both. And so I flew from Spain into uh, Venice for two days, then up to Rome for three days, and then to Paris for five days with my my oldest daughters and my wife and created some incredible experiences and memories with them as well. Amazing. Dave, thank you so much for sharing some thoughts today, sharing your wisdom. Really excited about Axia and everything that you're putting together there. Uh, I think the future is certainly bright. All information shared are the sole thoughts and opinions of the author. Do not take any information as legal or financial advice. 
you should seek a certified accountant and a professional legal team before taking any further action. We are not selling or soliciting a security in any way, shape, or form. This content is for educational purposes only and is not to be construed as financial or legal advice. Clients of Fund Launch or Black Card Capital Partners may maintain positions and securities discussed on this podcast.